0: Our scripture today comes lodged in the latter part of Leviticus and is an ancient list of rules for a special time that was supposed to be celebrated twice every century. This year of Jubilee was a time in which people across ancient Israel celebrated God's grace in real and revolutionary ways. Every 50 years, everyone across the nation was supposed to take a break from farming, forgive anyone of debt that they owed, and go home to their family land. As we read these first few rules for this great reset today, may we imagine what it might mean for God to invite us into a jubilee of our own. A reading from the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, verses 8 through 23. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud. On the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year, and you shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. You shall return every one of you to your property and every one of you to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. You shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. In this year of jubilee, you shall return every one of you to your property When you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not cheat one another. When you buy from your neighbor, you shall only pay for the number of years until the jubilee. The seller shall charge you for only the remaining crop years. If the years are more, you shall increase the price. And if the years are fewer, you shall diminish the price. For it is a certain number of harvests that are being sold to you. You shall not cheat one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord your God. You shall observe my statutes and faithfully keep my ordinances so that you may live on the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live on it securely. Should you ask, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we shall not sow or gather in our crops? I will order my blessing for you in the sixth year, so that it will yield a crop for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating from the old crop until the ninth year. When its produce comes, you shall eat the old. The land should not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. With me, you are but aliens and tenants. Here ends the reading. So rules don't always make sense the first time you read them. Sometimes you need to read them again and maybe actually use them before they start to make any sense. I think this is true with those rules about the year of Jubilee, but it's also true about many board games, which I experienced this week during a game night with our Roots Young Adult group. We played some game called Camel Up. It was about camel racing, but you don't play as the camels. Instead, each player places bets on the camels as they race around the board's track. And it turned out the rules were actually pretty simple, and it ended up being one of my favorite kind of games. It was not the camels or the gambling that I particularly liked, but rather the casual chaos. There was some strategy, but the tables could turn in the course of a couple minutes, and winning was as much luck as anything else. It's fun to watch folk work diligently, trying to have the most money for themselves, only for one twist to take everything they had, resetting the playing field. Sometimes there's just no justice in a good board game, and laughter and friendship are more important than winning and losing. It's Labor Day weekend, which makes me think more about laughter and friendship than quantifiable rewards of our work and It was actually a compelling act of camaraderie that created this holiday in the first place. Labor Day started in New York City in 1882 when the Central Labor Union led 10,000 workers to take unpaid time off and march across the city to bring awareness to dangerous working conditions. Twelve years later, similar movements had sprung up across the country President Cleveland signed legislation making the first Monday of every September Labor Day. For generations now, Labor Day has been a paid day off for many people to celebrate the achievement of American workers. A U.S. government website says that Labor Day recognizes us as the home of the greatest production the world has ever known. But those protests that started Labor Day don't really get paid attention to like other things do this weekend. Things like shopping sales or squeezing in one more summer vacation. So this Labor Day, let us take this invitation to think about what achievements or progress we're working toward and about what dreams God might dream with us about rest, work, and labor I recently read a story about someone who struggled with some complicated rules when a sudden reset brought her rest. Terry is a teacher in South Carolina who has worked hard to support herself and her daughter, Amari, as a single mom. Amari is now a teenager, but when she was born, she was born premature, and it cost a lot of money, more money than Terry could ever afford. For 13 years, Medical debt haunted her, debilitating her finances and her mental health. Collection companies sent letters and calls, and chronic anxiety and depression snuck in through the strain. Terry felt like she could never work hard enough to find financial freedom, and she worried that she had brought her daughter into a cycle of generational debt. But a few months ago, Terry got another letter in the mail this one in a bright yellow envelope. And this letter told Terry that that debt that had burdened her for years was gone. A nonprofit called RIP Medical Debt had forgiven everything that she owed. Suddenly, she was free. I also read that at least one in 10 adults have some unpaid medical debt in America, so stories like Terry's are unfortunately common. Debt seems to be a universal issue. Even the ancient nation of Israel struggled with systemic debt in their society. There are several parts in the Hebrew Bible that list out laws, like we read today, that limit debt and poverty. Deuteronomy 15, for example, introduces something called the Sabbath year. Just as every seven days was supposed to be a Sabbath, the day of rest, So every seven years was to be a year of rest as well. For agriculture, this meant no sowing or reaping. Fields lay fallow while everyone fed on food stored up from previous seasons. For economics, though, this rest was more than a pause. Every seven years, debts were forgiven, all of them. Deuteronomy says this radical move was rooted in the belief that God wanted there to be no one in need. But the cycle didn't stop there. Every seventh Sabbath year, so every 49 years, started something called the year of Jubilee. We read some rules for this year today. Leviticus 25 actually has 55 total verses that detail policies that go into this program of Jubilee. It was a dramatic generational reset to Israel's socioeconomic system. Fields again laid fallow. Debt was forgiven and reset. Slaves were freed and relief spread across the nation as everyone returned to their family's land. The day that Terry got those yellow envelopes from RIP medical debt must have felt like a jubilee. Her debt was forgiven She discovered she was not alone. Since 2014, RIP has brought Jubilee to over three and a half million people and have relieved nearly $7 billion of unpaid medical debt. And it hasn't cost RIP $7 billion to do it. It's common for hospitals to sell unpaid bills to third-party collection companies, and often they sell these bills for pennies on the dollar. A debt of $1,000 might be sold for just one or two hundred bucks, so collectors can turn around and make a profit, even if just a fraction of people actually pay what they owe. RIP Medical Debt steps in and twists these rules with a strategy they've jokingly called predatory giving. They buy medical debt with donated funds, just like a collections agency would, but they don't collect it. Instead, they let people know that they no longer owe anything. Where cycles of generational debt begin to spin out, this nonprofit steps in with the reset, often for people who desperately need their relief. An RIP CEO says that their work should not be simply celebrated. Instead, it's a sign that the rules of our insurance and healthcare system don't work for many real people. RIP is dedicated to doing something different than one might expect, and their dream is spreading. Recently, a hospital donated nearly a million dollars of unpaid debt directly to RIP in hopes that people who had owed money could come back to receive continued care that they really needed, even if they couldn't really afford it. And so RIP works towards debt forgiveness and forges an imagination for a world in which their work will no longer be necessary. Both RIP Medical Debt and the Year of Jubilee play out programs that meet the world where it is and point to the potential toward which we as a world can work. Jubilee acknowledges that society is no simple utopia. Scholars point out how Jubilee's rules assume that Israel would need a reset every generation and say nothing about the unethical nature of slavery, but the year of Jubilee didn't outlaw debt and instead built a system in which borrowing, giving, and lending all happened inside of a cycle characterized by God's grace and forgiveness— Scholars also say that there's no evidence that Israel ever properly practiced jubilee. There's one verse in Ezekiel that suggests that it happened at least one time, but that's kind of it. However, there are historical examples of nations doing things like canceling debt. Around the time of ancient Israel, it was common for a king to issue such a decree when the nation desperately needed it, or when it may win him good graces from the people. And so Jubilee joins this conversation about how nations could forgive debts and offer societal resets, but it spoke of a God who was less capricious than any human king. God doesn't just give grace randomly or when it makes God look good, but builds forgiveness and grace into the system. Jubilee, with its dream of a regular reset, Gave the Jewish people a collective vision for a world in which poverty never became generational, in which people would not always be in need. Jubilee speaks a different story than the narrative that we are on our own and taking care of our needs. It teaches instead trust, trust in each other, and trust in the natural systems through which God regularly provides. We read Jubilee's rules against sowing and reaping and how they come with this conviction that God will bless the crops and that they would be able to share without scarcity what was naturally provided. Nature today still shows us this sacred harmony that holds the world together with everything we need and more. And God invites us to find and build systems that better share this abundance all around us. Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about this abundance in her book, Braiding Sweetgrass, Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teaching of Plants. At one part, she describes an ancient gardening style known as the Three Sisters. For thousands of years, Native Americans have planted corn, bean, and pumpkin, or other kinds of squash, all together in the same soil. They've long known that these three plants three sisters, grow better together. Corn sprouts first, providing shade and structure. And then the beans are next, and their stalks vine through that protective corn. Finally, pumpkin grows with the deep roots that support the other species, and together, the three sisters are healthier and grow more fruit than they ever could on their own. When European colonists first saw these entangled gardens, they thought that indigenous Americans simply did not know how to farm. Crops were supposed to be straight rows of single species isolated on their own, not this three-dimensional sprawl of abundance. Kimmerer says that the three sisters teach us a lesson about working together, and they are a visible manifestation of what community can become When its members understand and share their gifts and reciprocity, they fill our spirit as well as our bodies. That mindset of the men who scoffed at the strategy they did not understand manages to still have an imprint on us today. Often we feel that we're supposed to work diligently to stand on our own, taking care of all of our needs Sometimes we struggle, like a stalk of corn in the shining sun stuck on its own, all the while God gives us a sprawling abundance to which we could grow together healthier and whole. RIP medical debt speaks against that individualism in our economic and social systems and tells people they are not alone. This message has led many churches to catch the vision and partner with RIP to practice jubilee. RIP is actually campaigning right now to raise $5 million from communities of faith and hopes to forgive up to $500 million in medical debt. But this is not the only way churches join together to work towards something like jubilee. In Luke and Acts, two books in the New Testament written by the same author, there's a thread of a jubilee story sown throughout the stories of Jesus and his first followers. In Luke 4, Jesus says that his mission is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a direct reference to the year of jubilee in Leviticus. And then in Acts 2 and 4, after Christ's resurrection, the first Christians form a church, a community, in which they have all things in common. Everyone sold everything that they owned to make sure that no one among them was in need. They took Jesus' jubilee vision seriously and tried to make it real in how they lived and worked together. And churches continue to take Jesus seriously and work towards jubilee. It happens right here and right around us. Recently, a group from our church community visited the Johnson County Museum for an exhibit about redlining here in Kansas City. We learned about corrupt real estate practices that were common last century and created much of the generational poverty that we still see here all across KC. Redlining was when neighborhoods had red lines restricting who could and could not live there. It was common for deeds to detail that people who were black or Jewish could not buy property in certain places. But this was not the story sold when these homes were marketed. We saw a picture of a newspaper clipping advertising this neighborhood, the Country Club District, and it promised that one's home would never lose caste if built here. And that your property value will unquestionably triple. They were right, but this assurance of individual security did not say anything about the restrictive covenants that withheld this opportunity from whole groups of people. Other neighborhoods were blockbusted, which happened when developers intentionally sold a house in a white neighborhood to a black family. They would then encourage neighbors around them to quickly sell for less than the houses were worth, playing to a fear that many felt about living in an integrated neighborhood. The neighborhood would change or the block would be busted. But not everyone was fooled by these tactics. Christians around us in this neighborhood, surely some friends and members of the community that created our church, refused. They put signs in their yard that said, Not for sale. I believe in my community and neighbors. And they believed in a system different than the one they saw around them. Instead of fearful individualism, they chose faith in what we can achieve when we all work together. It's a daunting dream, though, this dream of a world in which we all work together. Programs like the policies that make up the year of Jubilee feel foolish to many fears in our modern world. But like some sets of rules, the rules of Jubilee may not make sense until used. The picture comes into focus when we practice working towards Jubilee. And we do. We practice Jubilee as a church and our partnerships with organizations that go to work against generational poverty. There's Alt-Cap, who works across Kansas City to give loans and grants to minority-owned businesses. And then there's the Grooming Project, which if you like dogs, you'll like them. They're a dog grooming training school that provides dynamic education and meaningful career formation to parents escaping systems of generational poverty. And we work toward Jubilee in other ways as well. In 2020, our church collected funds to give direct aid to people during the shutdown, We paid people's rent and bills and provided relief when they desperately needed it. And in so many other ways, we stand together as a community against the isolation and the individualistic fear as we work together to discover and build a world in which God's abundance, grace, and forgiveness are at the core. Terry's life changed the day she got those bright yellow envelopes from RIP Medical Debt. She discovered a whole new kind of world. Her stress was gone, and things that had been sleeping in her spirit slowly began to wake up. Terry had long dreamt of singing on stage. She knew she had a voice, but she never felt free enough to find space to share this gift with the world. But now, Terry's doing it. Space has opened up within her and around her, and she's spent this summer preparing for her first public performance. Something tells me that Terry's voice sounds something like a trumpet-blasting note of God's jubilee. May we hear that sound singing and speaking to us, God saying that we can work together too towards God's dream of jubilee. Amen.